This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother. Over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree. Learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows. Or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word. Thank you, Noah David. Again, let me welcome you to City Church. Find a seat if you need one. Again, there seems to be plenty in these front areas here. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark together for over a year now. And this morning, we're going to dive into chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the longest section of Jesus' teaching in Mark. Additionally, chapter 13 is the most difficult of Jesus' teaching to interpret, to understand, and to apply. Listen, uh, listen to these quotes I took from men and women who I studied this week in an effort to try and understand. In the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. And then this, taking it beyond the Gospel of Mark, this is one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible. It is perplexing to understand for readers and interpreters alike. The reason I had Noah David read the entire text, and by the way, this is probably one of two, three, four sermons that I will preach from this chapter. The reason I had Noah David read it all is to get into our minds the reality that you cannot understand one verse of this chapter unless you understand the whole chapter. You can't understand any one tree unless you come back far enough and look at the forest. And even more important than that, since we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together, you cannot understand this chapter apart from or separated from its context, which is chapters 1 through 12. And so again this morning, we will go back and we will review some and begin to set ourselves in the context of Jesus and his disciples at the beginning Of chapter 13. A few introductory remarks before we dive in verse by verse. The outline in your worship folder will be less than helpful. We will be jumping around a lot between those four points. We will not go in sequence. On Thursday, when we went to print, I had a great idea, and then I lost it on Friday. This is what the cryptic outline means in your worship folder. One, the introduction to the Olivet Discourse. This entire chapter, chapter 13, is called the Olivet Discourse because the disciples and Jesus are sitting on the Mount of Olives discoursing about the temple. The temple, what I meant by this with the cryptic capitalizations is the Old Testament temple. This is God's design, God's desire, God's salvation. 
What I mean by that temple, no capitalization, is Herod's temple. It's been in the building for 46 years, and Jesus has been fighting there the entire last week of his life. What I mean by the temple, all caps, is Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. He is the great and ultimate and final temple. And so it is my hope that after 30 to 35 minutes, when I sit down and we bring the kids back in and baptize Brennan, that some of all of those ideas have been discussed. Just so you know, this sermon leans towards teaching. If there is a continuum of teaching and preaching, teaching being cerebral, teaching being in your head, teaching being getting concepts lined up for you, and if preaching is geared towards going right at your heart and talking about your need for Jesus and his sufficiency there, if this is a continuum of teaching and preaching, which I try and do both of every week, I try and line up what the text says and I try and apply it to us and I try and give Jesus to us. This sermon, not next week, not the week after, this one is going to be more towards teaching. It's gonna be more towards your head and mine. I just go ahead and tell you that in advance. But I would remind you that God created us heads and hearts in union. We need teaching and we need preaching. God saves us both by renewing our minds and changing our affections. And so this is not wasted time. Now, I realize in this room, one more, actually two more introductory remarks. I realize in this room, there are some of you who have never read this passage and you don't understand the big deal. Or you're scared to death. Some of you have read it, got confused, and moved on. Some of you have been thinking about this longer than I've been alive. Some of you have gone to conferences, retreats, and tours of the Holy Land to try and figure it all out. This week, I will continue to study hundreds of pages this last week, several phone calls to men and women on both sides of the aisle of the debate of this passage. I will continue to listen to sermons. I will listen to this sermon. I will see what we covered, even if it's not very well, and I will see what I left out. I will also reserve the right right now to tell you next week that I was wrong, and I will tell you why, and I will tell you how. I do not want to be emailed by any of you this week. (laughs) There is one exception to the rule. If you're old enough to be my mother, and you've been studying the word for a long time, and if you're a woman, I'd love for you to call. Now, with that said, get out your sermon insert, and we will begin. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you know that I have restricted you this week in what you could do this morning. You're well aware of the fact that I need to confess that I have throttled you back and believed that you could not use this morning in the hearts and lives of your people, and I am wrong. I pray that you'd forgive me. Lord Jesus, as we encounter your word today, may it be living and active. May it get right into the nitty-gritty parts of our hearts and souls and minds, and may it bear fruit. Lord, we do not understand how you save us. We do not understand why you save us except for your glory. We do not understand the ins and outs of this redemption, but we trust that this morning you are saving your people. You are planting this church. You are advancing your kingdom in the city of Orlando. I pray that you would do that this morning in this sermon and the ones that follow. In your name we pray, amen. Chapter 13, 
verse 1. And as he, Jesus, accompanied by his disciples, as he came out of the temple, right there, we're reminded that this is a long and complex teaching that it does not stand alone in the book of Mark. It is not something that can be divorced from its context. Jesus is leaving the temple. He will not return to the temple again. Jesus is leaving the temple, and this symbolizes his final and definitive break with the temple. Remember, we're in chapters 11 through 16. This is the last section of Mark's gospel. In this section, 11 through 16, we are in the last week of Jesus' life. In this time, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, all of it is centered in and around Herod's temple. Remember, on Sunday, he entered the temple. He thoroughly inspected the temple. On Monday, he cursed the temple in a fig tree that symbolized it. On Monday, he entered the temple. He condemned it by by cleansing it, by arresting it or stopping it from its production, and he was teaching against it. Remember that he came back the next day, Tuesday, the day that it is now evening in our passage. He came back to argue about it. And after winning by knockout in a seven-round lopsided fight, Jesus leaves the temple to never return Back to verse one. Mark records Jesus and the disciples leaving the temple, going to their bed and breakfast in Bethany, which is what they do every night of the last week of his life. One disciple, many commentators think it's Judas due to his, um, his pattern of materialism, expl- exclaims, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's like my family from South Carolina going to New York City for the first time. Golly, y'all. Look at them, their buildings. Not making fun of anyone from South Carolina. It's my home. The word translated as wonderful is actually from what country, what kind, how great, how massive. Now, we've been saying this all along, but I realize some of you haven't been with us. The temple was utterly amazing. It was considered one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It was an immense 35-acre enclosure that you could fit 12 football fields inside of. It had been under construction for 46 years, John chapter 2. And it, wasn't even, it was still years from being finished. Regarding the buildings, the ones that this unnamed disciple talks about, many believe that they were the most beautifully ordained, ornate, and most impressive buildings ever constructed. The blocks of stone used in construction for the foundation and for the columns of the portico were enormous. Josephus, a historian, reports that some were 40 cubits. That's 60 feet long. While we have not found, or or archaeologists have not found any that size, the stones north of Wilson's Arch are 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep. We assume that they weigh over a million pounds. These far exceed any size, both the buildings and the stones of any other temple in the ancient world. Regarding real estate, where this massive structure, this complex of structures sat, it was the center and the heart of the city. It was one-fourth of the entire city of Jerusalem. One commentator wrote, Jerusalem was a temple with a small city around it. Josephus, the same historian, a Jewish historian, wrote around 75 AD, the exterior of the building wanted or lacked nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. 
To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mount. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. But as we pick up in verse 2, we'll see that Jesus is not nearly as impressed as the disciples might expect. He said, do you see these mega structures? There will not be left here one stone upon another. They will all be thrown down. Now, you got to realize about Herod's temple, his goal was to please and impress impress Rome. He wanted to create a stunning, breathtaking temple that would draw Rome towards him, that would bring power towards him. So instead of what the Old Testament taught and what the Old Testament envisioned, instead of it being a center for faith and service, it was the temple as a center for political power, might, and authority. Instead of being a place of mercy, it became a place of economic prosperity and fraud. Instead of being a place of healing, it became a place of exposure and pain. Instead of being the place where heaven and earth would intersect in forgiveness and sacrifice, it became a place where Herod tried to get Jerusalem and Rome to intersect. Jesus is saying plainly, in very, pardon the pun, concrete terms, what he has already said figuratively in the fig tree and what he already acted out in cleansing the temple, God's judgment is coming and not one stone will be left on top of another. Now, you have to know that from that place, a several minute, if not half hour walk ensued and the disciples and Jesus went over onto the Mount of Olives. They went through the Kidron Valley, up the mount and sat down where travelers would sit to rest and to look right into the front doors of the sanctuary. Now, this is crucial to understand the entire chapter. First, the disciples say, tell us when these things will be. These things are these massive buildings and stones that Jesus had just said would not stay on top of one another when Jerusalem is literally, literally turned upside down. And they say, second, what will be the sign? So when will it be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, This is a direct reference to Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple. But we also know from Matthew 24 that in the disciples' mind, when the temple would be torn upside down, when the temple would be burned to the ground, when the temple would be destroyed, they also assumed that would be the end of the age and it would be the return of the Son of Man. So throughout this chapter, it's not so simple as, well, Jesus is just responding to a simple question about the temple. Because we know from Matthew 24, the way that Matthew writes the question, he says this, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, sounds familiar. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign, not that they're about to happen, but that you're about to come and it's gonna be the close of the age. Now in the disciples' mind, the end of that world would be the end of the world. But Jesus is saying the two events about which you ask are not the same event. They're actually in history gonna be separate events. That it will be the end of a world, a temple-centered Judaism, but it will not be the end of my world. And so in this chapter, the reason it's confusing is because it goes back and forth between immediate future events and ultimate future events. Now, one prophecy of Jesus in chapter 13 has been fulfilled. Herod's temple has been destroyed. We'll talk about that very specifically 
in a minute. One of Jesus' prophecies has not been fulfilled yet. He has not come back. He has not closed out this age. This is where it gets fun. This is where the complexity and the heated debate begins. It's not clear cut as to which of these verses is about the temple of doom and which of these verses is about the second coming and which of these verses is about both and in what manner. Now that's the part that makes it confusing. Whichever ones are about both in the sense that the destruction of the temple is some sort of prophetic event that comes and looks like when Jesus brings the age to a close. Is it just themes of the destruction of the temple that we live out in our lives now? Or is there going to be a historic event similar to the destruction of the temple at the end times? That's why everyone doesn't just write their commentaries. Listen, most parts of the commentaries will say this. Jesus said this, and this is what it means, A. This commentary will say, Jesus said this, and this is what it means, B. And never shall the twain meet. In this context, chapter 13, the commentaries, they will say, this is what Jesus said, and this is what it doesn't mean, and this is what it might mean, and this is what I think it means. And this is what commentary B thinks it means, and this is what they think it doesn't mean, and this is why they think it means what they think it means, but they're wrong and they're stupid, and this is why. And then this commentary over here will say, well, and it goes on and on. Because it's not so clear cut. Now, for the record, at this point, which I reserve the right to change my mind, <laughs> even next week, which I'm not interested in talking about this week via email, phone, or in person. My best educated guess is this. Verses 5 through 23 is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and the sign that will let them know it's about to happen. That's essentially what we're going to cover this morning. Verses 24 to 27 is Jesus talking about those days, his second coming. Then, because they asked not only about the sign, they also asked, when is this going to happen? Jesus answers when it's going to happen to the temple in verses 28 through 31. This goes back to him saying it will happen within one generation, 40 years, and it did. Then verses 32 through 36, honestly, the most applicable verses to you and I because it tells us how to behave now that we know Jesus is coming back, how to behave now that we don't know when it's gonna be and what difference it should make in our lives. Next week, we will primarily focus on verses 32 to 36. So the question on the table, when will it be and what will be the sign? Jesus answers the sign question first. Get your Bibles back out or your insert back out and we'll read together. First, Verses 5 through 13. Remember, I said cerebral. I was not lying. Verses 5 through 13, he's going to give them a list of events and situations that are not the sign. They're going, they want to know, listen, when these massive stones that are the size of train boxcars start falling over, I want to be out of here. Would you please tell me when that's going to happen? And so Jesus gives them a list of events and situations that are going to happen in their lifetime. But he says, quote, we're going to read it explicitly. This is not the end. These are not the signs. This is just the beginning. Verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. When it starts to get bad, there's going to be false prophets and false Christs. Verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, I am, not I am he. It's literally I am, the Old Testament name of Jesus. And they will lead many astray 
astray. He said the first event is that there's going to be false messiahs. The second event that is not the sign for the destruction of the temple is that you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. He says clearly, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7b, nation will rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. Third, he says, you can expect in your lifetime earthquakes and famines in various places. But again, this is not the sign of the destruction, nor is it the sign of the end of the age. It's just the beginning of birth pains. Verse 8. Fourth, the fourth event and the fourth situation that would be normal for their life that did not signal anything catastrophic would be persecution from Gentiles and Jews. They will be hated by all men for his sake, verse 13. They will be delivered over, betrayed to Roman councils. They will be beaten in Jewish synagogues. And these beatings and these slayings will be a result of brother betraying brother to death and father betraying child to death and children rising up against parents and having them put to death. Oh, what a horrible time Jesus told the disciples would happen before the sign that let them know the destruction of the temple was about to happen. And you have to know this. This is another thread in these verses. That this will all be allowed if not orchestrated by God himself so that his disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would bear witness for Jesus' sake, verse 9. And in fact, it won't be them speaking, but the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, they will proclaim the gospel to all nations that Jesus says part and parcel for your part of the church and every epic of the church is suffering, which leads to witness. Now, when you read historical accounts of 30 AD to 70 AD, whether you read Luke, who's the biblical historian that writes Acts, whether you read Josephus, who is the Jewish historian, whether you read Tacitus, the Roman historian, whether you read Eusebius, the Christian historian, we know from these four men, all of these things happened to the disciples in the early church before the destruction of the temple. Regarding false messiahs, Acts 5 tells us about a guy named Theudas and then about another guy named Judas the Galilean. Regarding rumors of wars, we know that Caligula, around 37 AD, threatened to put a a statue of himself in the Holy of Holies, and there were rumors of war from a distance that it was going to happen, but he never showed up and nobody ever saw him. They just heard rumors of war. Obviously, total war did break out. Actual regarding war broke out in 66 AD when the Jewish zealots revolted and plunged the whole nation into catastrophic defeat. Regarding earthquakes and famines, famous earthquakes are recorded in Roman history in in, uh, Phrygia, I don't even know how to say that, Phrygia, let's say, in 61 AD and Pompeii in 63 AD. There was a worldwide famine during Claudius' reign in 54 AD, and you can see Acts 11 where Agabus foretells that this worldwide famine is going to happen. Regarding persecutions from Gentiles and Romans, the book of Acts is an entire commentary on that happening. The tribulation or sufferings of God's people increased the numbers and faith of the church. It did not decrease it. Regarding the proclamation of the gospel to all nations, listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1, 62 AD. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing, is present tense, throughout the whole world. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been, past tense, proclaimed to every creature 
under heaven. Now, none of those is the sign to tell them to run. All of those are things that happen to every epoch in every culture in the history of the church. But this, starting in verse 14, this is going to be the sign. Look at what he says. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It says when this event, we'll uncover in a moment, when the desolation, the abomination of desolation happens, if you're on the housetop and you go down the stairs that are outside the house, don't go into your house to take anything. When this event, this sign happens, verse 16, let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. He doesn't care if it's winter. He doesn't care if they'll need it that night for a blanket. He says, don't go back into the city. It's about to get really bad. And he says, oh, verse 17, it's gonna be horrible for pregnant women and nursing mothers. He says, literally pray that it does not happen in winter. And the reason for that is because it would be so cold and, and the, the Jordan River and the wadis and the streams and the tributaries that, that contribute to it would be so swollen that they would not be able to cross with their babies. And by the way, God's people prayed and it happened in summer. Titus, in fact, surrounded the city in July of 70 AD, and in September, he burned the entire city and the temple to the ground. Verse 19, there will be such tribulation. Now he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Such tribulation, suffering, pain, calamity, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days... No human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, the abomination of desolation. If chapter 13 is one of the hardest chapters in all the Bible, which it is, and um, if, uh, if there's one verse in chapter 13 that people like to fight about and argue over and get confused about. It's the abomination of desolation. What does that possibly mean? He's saying this is the sign. This is when you know you should flee to the mountains. We have to believe the disciples understood more clearly than us, but we at least know this, that Daniel 9, 10, and 11, three times this phrase is used to describe someone or something that would defile the temple and abolish daily sacrifices. Abomination is something repugnant to God. Abomination that causes desolation. Desolation would leave the temple, this repugnant act in God's face would leave the temple deserted and desolate of faithful worshipers. Now, you see in parentheses in verse 14, he says, let the reader understand. Remember, right at this point in the book of Mark, Jesus' primary point is preparing his disciples about what they should do in this generation, and particularly when the judgment of God comes down on the temple. When Mark is writing this book, he's writing between 65 and 68 AD, and he's writing to Christians throughout Rome. And he puts in parentheses, he says, let the reader Understand. We have to assume that something is going on at that time historically that they would understand. Let them know it's time to flee the city. Now, when Luke writes this exact same uh, chapter, 
he adds this addition, I think, which helps us understand what the abomination of desolation is. He says, Luke 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so Luke is saying, when Rome besieges the city, do not run into the temple thinking that God will save you there. He has already judged it. Get out as fast as you can. Now, horribly and tragically, one of the worst events, if not the worst event, understanding what Marcus said here, Titus entered Jerusalem in September of AD 70 with his siege beginning in July. If you're not sure what it means to besiege a city, it just means you surround it and you don't let anything into it. And people either leave, and as long as they leave with nothing in their hands, you let them go. But if they leave with anything, you kill them and you take it. And you just wait for the city to turn on itself with no way in, food, and no way out, trash. And Josephus writes that historian Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground, R-A-Z-E-D. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Josephus tells us that somewhere around a million Jews died by crucifixion or famine. So many were crucified that every tree was destroyed around the whole city. He wrote that they left the city as swimmers, deserting a sinking ship. Eusebius, the Christian historian, says, the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle, Mark 13, given by revelation before the war to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan, which they called Pella. To Pella, those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem. And Jesus says, when this happens, the sign, and when you flee, verse 21, once again, false Christ's And false prophets will arise and they will have power from Satan to perform signs and wonders in hope of leading astray. But be on guard. I have told you all these things. Remember they said, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that all these things will happen? He said, I've told you all these things beforehand. Now, let's apply this to us. If you were paying attention to what I was saying about the temple, the Old Testament temple, that, that vehicle in God's redemptive story that he was using to make contact with his people and save them. If you were listening to me, I was telling you about the Old Testament temple where heaven and earth would intersect, where sacrifices would be made so that sinners could be in God's presence, where those who were hurt could come for healing, where those who were rebellious could come for forgiveness, where those who in need could come for help. Do you understand what is happening in the destruction of the temple, which Jesus had cursed and left irrelevant 40 years before? Do you understand that the question that we must beg and we must ask and we must deal with is, did God throw the baby out with the bathwater? And what I mean by that is, what about us? Is there no temple for us to go to for the forgiveness of sins? Is there no temple where we can go 
and meet with God, approach him in his glory and splendor and not be smitten? Is there a temple where we can go and be saved? I don't have to rush this point. In Mark 14, the temple will be mentioned again. Remember, Jesus will not go back. But when duplicitous witnesses were lined up against him, one of the accusations they made was this. It's quoting him from John chapter two. This is something he said. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another temple not made with hands. And when Jesus was on the cross in Mark chapter 15, we will come to it in months. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. I don't know how else to say it other than to say this. The temple, all caps, is Jesus. Jesus says directly in John chapter two, this temple and all of its splendor is going to be burned down and destroyed and literally turned upside down. But then, after I become the temple on the cross, I will be rebuilt in three days. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the temple. The temple was never meant to be the final vehicle of God's salvation. The temple is supposed to give way to me. The temple points to me. The temple is ultimately and beautifully made irrelevant in me. Next Tuesday, we'll read in Hebrews chapter 10 for City Bible Reading. We will read, and by the way, if you're in Hebrews right now and if you're confused, it's okay. The book of Hebrews is just one book that is explaining to a Jewish community that Jesus is the superior of everything they knew in Israel. (laughs) He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the great high priests. In chapter 10, it's gonna say that Jesus is superior to the law. He's superior to the sacrifices that happened in the temple. He's superior to the great high priest. He's superior because he is the sacrifice who once he is sacrificed for his people's sins, there needs be no more sacrifices. In in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews is gonna say that the Old Testament, the temple that God did use, capital T's, it was a shadow of things to come. So he's letting us know that if you can imagine yourself on an alley and in front of you is a street, you begin to see a shadow because the light of revelation is showing you that a shadow is coming. He says the shadow is not the reality itself. That shadow is gonna be made obsolete. The shadow is letting you know that behind it is coming the identity, the real thing, the actual thing, the one who will save you, the one in whom heaven and earth will intersect, the one in whom God and man meet, the one in whom there is judgment and sacrifice, the one in whom there is forgiveness and mercy and freedom from sins. We'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I would remind myself and my friends that I would assume that every sermon of mine has points in it that are not true. And I would remind myself and my friends that every sermon I preach is going to have errors in it because I am not their rabbi, you are. And I am not their instructor, you are. And I am fallen and I am rebellious. I love you and I long to be saved by you. But the fact is I have to rest in this reality that I may make mistakes. 
Jesus, wherever those mistakes are, would you strike them from our hearts, get them out of our minds. Do not let us debate about them. Do not let us become pretentious about them. Do not let us argue over this passage and and miss the beautiful part that you're our temple. Jesus, would you take what is from you, what is of your gospel, what it is that will set us free, and would you cause it to germinate and to grow in our hearts. In your name we pray.